best not miss. Well, I'm a bunch of real proud laying motherfucker, motherfucker. This is Welcome to the Party, Pal, and I'm your host, Christian Needen, soon to be joined by a very special guest. We'll be discussing The Serpent, a 2021 crime drama miniseries in eight parts about the murderous career of serial killer Charles Sobraj. The miniseries is a co-production between BBC One and Netflix, written by Richard Warlow and Toby Finley, with additional materials sourced from the book Bad Blood, The Life and Crimes of Charles Sobraj by Richard Neville and Julie Clark. Filmed on location in Bangkok, Thailand, The Serpent opens there in the fall of 1975, depicting the vibrant, bustling Thai capital during a period of regional upheaval. The Vietnam War had ended in April of that year with the fall of Saigon, and for Westerners trying to get out of the country, Thailand is a close option for escape. But they are joined there by other younger Westerners, flocking to South and East Asia to pick up the so-called hippie trail and elevate their spirituality by visiting Buddhist and Hindu holy sites. Some of them will never return home, murdered by Sabraj and his accomplices, often after drinking a narcotic-laced cocktail, then being robbed of their valuables and passports, which in turn pays for the fast-living lifestyle of Sabraj's other identity, Alan Gautier, gem dealer and thrower of parties at Candid House, a hostile-style hotel in Bangkok where Sabraj's crew lures their victims. After two young Dutch tourists who have crossed paths with Sobraj at Canada House go missing, their fate is investigated by Herman Nipperberg, a diplomat within Holland's embassy in Bangkok. His investigations lead him to discover the true scope of Sobraj's horrifying crime spree amidst a regional chaos of bureaucracy, language, and corruption. The young diplomat will be the driving force to try and bring the serpent to justice. To discuss the miniseries and its depiction of South and East Asia of the 1970s is this episode's guest, a veteran American Foreign Service officer on current assignment in Thailand who is joining me remotely from Bangkok. He also happens to be my cousin, Evan Fox. Welcome to the podcast, Evan. Hey, Chris. So tell me, Evan, what were your thoughts on The Serpent? Oh, I thought it was great. Um, it's really, it's actually pretty fun. I thought the way it was shot was pretty... Um, interesting you really feel like you're in 1975 it does switch back and forth between kind of different time periods which is a little bit jarring sometimes but i just um kind of working overseas and and kind of having been to a lot of areas um similar to to where the film where the miniseries takes place i, I served in uh, ho chi minh city uh, in vietnam for first assignment overseas and i'm currently working in bangkok you really kind of get the, the vibe of the place and you can imagine how it must have been back in 1975. And I, I also, I really enjoy the plight of this poor, you know, third secretary at the Dutch embassy who's going around and doing his best to get to the bottom of this case. And he's just so dedicated and, and dealing with the limited tools that he has and just the way he kind of navigates the landscape, I thought was really interesting to follow, especially kind of given my experience overseas. Let's talk about the landscape of Bangkok. It was filmed on location there, but one of the interesting ways this series kind of evokes a time of uh, some 45 years ago is what looks like kind of uh, kind of Super 8 or, or 16 millimeter uh, kind of tourist video footage or camera footage 
uh, of, you know, like that you would see if you were visiting as a tourist there circa that time. In seeing a lot, of, there's a lot of these images of this, this very vibrant um, kind of uh, eclectic city um, that's the Thai capital. In, in your own experience there now, how, how much has, have, has it changed visually from the views that we see of it circa 1975 to today? Yeah, it's funny that you should say that. There are a couple of iconic things you keep noticing in the miniseries, and one of them is are the tuk-tuks, you know. When you travel around, especially in Bangkok, uh, the way that a lot of people get around are these three-wheeled uh, vehicles, um, and, and you kind of see them buzzing around, and the characters in the, in the miniseries are buzzing around on these kind of very iconic tuk-tuk vehicles. Um, you know, obviously the cars are, are kind of period... Uh, are, are from that era, um, and and that's that, that's definitely changed, and but you know a lot of the architecture that like the place where they actually stay, the apartment complex. There's still a lot of buildings that look like that. There's kind of a lot of architecture from the 1970s still here in Bangkok. Although you, you know, the the real difference is that now are there these huge, you know, beautiful skyscrapers that are are being built. And there's been a real construction boom in Thailand since that time. So you still. You know, you see some of the old architecture, uh, especially in, in uh, kind of older parts of the downtown, but especially kind of where I live in the in the diplomatic or the kind of financial district, there's uh, a lot, a stark contrast in terms of like the, the really big modern buildings. And amidst the the kind of swirl of, of native Thai populace that's in the city, um, obviously it's a huge destination pre-COVID for... Um, tourists. Certainly, this uh, mini series focuses on on Western tourists and their uh, visits to Thailand to visit uh, to specifically to visit its its Buddhist related holy sites and this uh, and then going onward to the so called hippie trail onward to places like Nepal and India. Um, have you noticed that that presence as well? Are th- are there still Westerners? Um, even in COVID or post-COVID times now, or other parts of Asia that come here to to uh, visit those holy sites uh, in Thailand. Absolutely, and I think it's you know it's a range of factors that bring people to Thailand. It's got great food, you know, warm people. Like you said, it's got these religious sites. It's got mountains and beaches, and it's fairly inexpensive to boot. So I mean, there are a lot of different reasons people come to Thailand. At any given time in Thailand. Pre-COVID, there'd be about 100,000 Americans in the country at any time, including kind of long-term residents and then uh, visitors. The, the thing I, uh, currently is that uh, Thailand has actually done a pretty good job of keeping COVID under control for the most part, and they've done that by mostly closing their borders to, to foreign tourists. And it's been uh, really stark when you go to big tourist sites or, or kind of famous beaches, the number of people is just way, way lower than it would have been in the past. And it's had a big effect on the economy. You know, they've had to close tons of uh, restaurants. Uh, many of the hotels are operating at, at a much lower capacity or, and, or have closed their doors temporarily. So the, the image you have kind of of COVID era Bangkok right now is, is really different. A lot of that vibrancy is, is kind of reduced. Um, definitely fewer foreign tourists, although I should say there are lots of people um, from the United States and elsewhere that, that live in Bangkok and are long-term residents. So th- that kind of international aspect is still still going strong. 
And you mentioned the closed borders uh, having to do with with COVID. Obviously, we're living in an electronic era, digital era, where being able to track the comings and goings cross borders is is a lot more refined than it was in 1975, uh, 76, the the core period of this miniseries in which Sobraj as Gautier and his accomplices kind of crisscross the region um, with stolen passports that have a very kind of tactile approach to doing so, replacing these photos literally with, uh, you know, glue and, and, and knives to, uh, to replace identities and take up, you know, new identities like one would change clothing. Um, was that kind of a bit jarring for you to see that uh, as someone who has traveled widely in that region and has probably had to go through his, his own share of inspections of your papers? Sure, of course, definitely. Every time you go across a border, you know, you're going to, you kind of, uh, I don't get nervous just because there's an official who's inspecting you. And I can't imagine doing it when you're kind of impersonating another, uh, another individual. I, uh, I did find that part of the, the film really interesting, especially since, you know, I've kind of worked with, with passports, um, kind of in our, in our consular sections in embassies overseas, you know, we, one of the functions is to issue visas and to, um, kind of issue passports and it's amazing the technology between 1975 and now is just so different. I mean, the advent of uh, something now that we have called a machine readable passport, which basically is the passport that you scan and has all your uh, information kind of uh, stored. Uh, now we have a, a, you know, there's a microchip that, you know, stores the information. You can imagine it's, it's, the technology is much, much better. And the anti-counterfeiting, uh, anti-fraud uh, aspect of it is is way like light years ahead of what they're doing in the film so i think it is kind of interesting to see this from a different era and just the idea that you know they could just cut out the picture and glue it another one and and you know i can't remember he's like the bottom of a bottle or something like that to get like the right seal on there and it seems like very very basic and it's it is kind of mind-blowing that that could actually work because it's i mean it's just way way more sophisticated these days yeah, and another use of that that bottle bottom is to uh, break up the narcotics into powder form, which he uses to drug his victims. You know, something that after watching this miniseries, Evan, that really kind of uh, got to me was the idea of now going, and again, maybe COVID has, has a role in this, of going to mixed company party now and having someone give me a drink and thinking in the back of my head what might be in it. Um, what really that speaks to is some of the dangers that are faced by tourists or, or outsiders coming in, not even specifically to Thailand, but to any foreign country, and in this case, South and East Asia, a region that you've traveled in. Could you speak to any of the precautions that, that, uh, that are in the back of your head when you're, when you're traveling as a tourist um, in this region? Sure. I mean, and there, there are many, right? So I think that often the, the first one that people think of is kind of petty crime and yeah, that's anybody who's been overseas has had you know issues with their you know bag being snatched or had you know pickpocketed. I, I remember one time when I was in uh, or living overseas, I had somebody just kind of in a market come by and pick up my phone, and then I had to you know figure out how to report it and all that. Um, I think the the physical kind of violence is something that just I haven't in the in the countries that I've been in um, in in Thailand now and in the Philippines and uh, Vietnam, I just, it, it hasn't been as much an issue, although, you know, you have to kind of be smart about where you are and what time of day you're there and, and different dangers. Usually before we go to a, a new country, what we do is the, the State Department actually has a public website called travel.state.gov. And, um, you know, you can go there and it has information on everything you can think of about, the, about that country, you know, what 
the immigration requirements are, but also you know crime things to worry about or natural disasters or or other things. It's kind of a good one-stop shop to figure out you know what you should be thinking about. So we really try to like educate ourselves before going somewhere, and then you know and just kind of be smart about things. Um, there are there are definitely definitely times that I've been kind of in uh, seedier parts of town, you know, trying out a new restaurant or something like that. And, uh, and you know, thought, oh, you know, maybe I shouldn't be here at this time of day. And, and, you know, I thought about it. And I think that seeing this film, it makes me think, especially having kids, you know, um, making sure that everybody's really educated on what, you know, potential dangers are um, and, and taking the right precautions is something that's really, really important. But yeah, I think that, you know, traveler safety is something we think about a lot. Um, and, and crime is, is one of the big things. But there's, there's other stuff. You know, there's natural disasters you have to think about. There's, uh, you could be in a situation where you have a... We've been places where there's you know, terrorism is something you have to worry about. So there's, there's a whole host of things when you're outside of U.S. borders that kind of cross your mind. And obviously one of the things that made Sabraj so dangerous was the relative appearance of safety by, um, by him setting up shop in Candid House, this kind of um, hostile-style hotel um, that that people travelers on the cheap could stay on for whatever however amount of time they wanted to stay on there have you had any experience with the, that kind of hostile style uh approach to travel and because obviously this this miniseries depicts multiple kind of cost levels of hotels there's the grand the grand expensive ones but then this the the Canada house seems like it's something that that is very appealing because of its cost and also the um, relative kind of um, companionship that you get from a mixed company of other people who are on the same kind of uh, economic budget. Right, right. Very social, right? You know, you're traveling by yourself, you meet people. Yeah. Yeah, it's so funny, Chris. You know, I our uh, lifestyle overseas has really changed. We've been overseas for the last 12 years and uh, gone from kind of uh, my wife and I being newly married and living overseas to having kids and and we I, I have to tell you, you know, there was a time for sure that we stayed in places that were uh, in in worse shape than Canada House you know I think that we we you know, we stay in these very because you know when you're on a budget and especially in Thailand uh, but in other countries in in Southeast Asia there are these uh, hostels where you can stay for you know, 10 bucks a night or, you know, or, or less. And you have a kind of bunk by bunk bed style. Like in this place that they were staying, everybody had their own room, but we've stayed in places that, you know, you kind of stay in bunk beds and have a shared shower. Um, and it's very inexpensive. And like you said, it has the advantage of having young travelers that your age and go out and, uh, kind of party together and have fun together and, and make new friends. And there are a lot of, a lot of advantages to that. Um, you know, we, my exposure to that that scene now is is pretty minimal. Um, you know, we definitely have upgraded a little bit in terms of like the level of places we stay, but um, those those kinds of places are still a really big part of the kind of overseas experience. And still, you know, this is taking place in 1975 at the Hippie Trail, but I'd say you know backpacking through Southeast Asia is still something that's very popular, especially people kind of just out of college or taking a gap year or um, all, all different kinds of folks. You see older people and younger people too. You'll have whole parts of uh, of these major cities that are kind of dedicated to people that are having that overseas experience with restaurants and hostels and things that cater um, to that to that demographic. So I remember when we were living in in Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam and former Saigon, there was a whole backpacker district where we'd go and you could buy kind of interesting souvenirs and 
go to fun restaurants and um here in thailand it's the the same you know we have there's kind of like the backpacker area where there's uh different kinds of restaurants catering to that crowd um, we, we spend less time there now but it's something definitely i've had experience with in the past another thing i wanted to get your observations on is something more to the cultural side uh, you mentioned being posted in vietnam you've been posted in bangladesh you've been posted now in thailand those three regions play a crucial part in Charles Sabraj's makeup. Obviously, you know, he's driven by uh, a deep-seated grievance, it seems, at his own birth. Um, his father is Indian. His mother is Vietnamese. His mother eventually remarries a French naval officer. Um, having Sabraj himself for a time grows up in Vietnam, forgets how to speak Vietnamese and take and notes that he speaks French primarily by the time she comes to get him and he, he moves back to um, to France. Um, and again, you know, he's he's living on kind of war-torn streets. The war is taking place during his kind of formative years of the 60s. Uh, I wanted to, to get your take on that that aspect of Sabraja's character that's studied in this miniseries, the idea of the kind of half-breed-born citizens there, those those people that are kind of in and out of society that aren't quite, in, at least in Sabraja's take on it, not quite um, accepted. And he feels uh, consequently like almost like a lower caste or a lower class than the rest of society there. What were your thoughts on, on that aspect of Sabraj? Yeah, that was a really interesting um, aspect. I think um, there's a lot there's a lot wrapped up in that and it's hard to kind of generalize, but I think um, that kind of Definitely, uh, particularly in, um, in 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 the countries that you mentioned, there is a class consciousness for sure. Um, kind of so, there's in like an eth- uh, economic component to you know different levels of society, and it's uh, difficult to move between different levels. And I, you know that's true in the United States, but I definitely no- noticed it present in in this part of the world. I think that the ethnic component that you mentioned and kind of having a mixed heritage and kind of not knowing where you fit in and, you know, something obviously that we, uh, I think we celebrate a lot in the United States is people's backgrounds and kind of different places they've been from. But, but I think it can be um, a challenge sometimes in, in this part of the world. So, you know, are, are, you, are you really Thai? Are you really uh, Vietnamese? Um, are, or, or, or you're kind of, or, or are you something else, you know, kind of more, more mixed? Um, I think in in Vietnam, you know, historically there are um, kind of from the the long U.S. presence there, um, there are uh, a lot of people kind of of you know uh, our generation that are um, have mixed heritage, you know, um, kind of have uh, American background and also have you know, Vietnamese background or, or or Thai background, and um, I know that there were um, kind of. Uh, there, there are specific words like in, in Vietnam, for instance, a person with that uh, or a person who's kind of like seen to be an American and um, it, but it has kind of Vietnamese heritage is, is Viet Q. Um, and, and you kind of, I guess, maybe is looked at a little bit differently in a slightly different category. So it's, it's hard to kind of like I, I think it's hard to kind of speak generally about it. But I think that is a really important component and something that people probably really struggle with a lot. Um, I've got lots of friends that are kind of. Uh, of mixed heritage and kind of uh, choose to identify, you know, as as from this region or, or from the United States or from another place. And I think it's uh, probably very uh, challenging as an individual to figure out kind of where you fit in. And I, and I can see how in the story of Sabraj that, uh, that plays a big role and he feels very slighted um, because, you know, it doesn't quite feel accepted 
uh, or that he fits in in either place. And I, I could see how that hap- could happen in kind of a very class-sensitive, kind of background-sensitive, high-context society. Yeah, I agree. And and also the accomplices that he surrounds himself with are also kind of very, it, it, it seems very aware of where life has put them in terms of the limits to their whatever class they began at or the limit of, of racial barriers. Um, specifically, that's uh, Jenna Coleman, who plays Marie Andre Leclerc, aka Monique, who's originally from Quebec, um, who takes on this Monique persona um, after she meets uh, Sabraj and and at his at his urging, and he's kind of almost molds these these people as he notes. He he kind of preys on the lonely and the malleable, the people that are, that are kind of looking for something more from life, and she certainly falls that way. Another is is Ajay Chowdhury, his kind of right hand for for most of of the crimes of this period, who he eventually drops because he knows that if when he goes back. When he and and um, Marie, aka Monique, go back to France together, someone you know, a dark-skinned Indian like Ajay, will not be um, accepted within his kind of um, identity as a as a high-flying gem dealer, and that they it, it won't that, that the Khan won't go uh, won't be able to be pulled off by that. And this is obviously Ajay on multiple occasions resents, um, even though he's he's done, given himself completely over. To, to the crimes of, of Sabraj. Um, in addition to that, there's kind of like a, a uh, to that dark side, there's a light side almost with regard to, to Herman Nipperberg. Late in the series, he notes the sacrifices that his own mother made in kind of uh, a post-war, uh, war-torn Holland, and the idea that he grew up at with kind of a, a loving motherhood and that, that she encouraged him to uh, rely on books and bicycles to get him where he wants to go. And so, you know, multiple times during the series, uh, his he turns down the opportunity to, to get a pistol or a gun from um, his Belgian associate who helps him on his investigations of Sabraj. And he is kind of himself kind of a, a guy who's who who's ambitious in to a degree in his in, in where he wants his own um, career to go but is also kind of actively sacrificing it against the uh, the will of the Dutch ambassador who wants him to drop the, his investigations and ultimately he has to make a choice on whether or not to, to continue with his career you know it's it so it's interesting this dynamic of these people who in, all have to make these decisions about how far they want to go and the, the sacrifices and how much they will give up of their own soul, so to speak, to do so. This leads into something else I want to talk to you about, Evan, and the, which is, again, kind of, I, I don't know how much of this you've seen at, while you've been over, over there. I know you were posted in Bangladesh for a while. I don't know how much you got into India or Nepal. But there's a memorable sequence, I believe in Kathmandu, where uh, the three of them where Monique and and Sobraj and um, and Ajay are 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 there kind of as a as a brief getaway, and at one point Ajay I, I believe gets kind of a dose of LSD and uh, it kind of goes wandering with with a with a Western girl through um, some of these shrines in, in Nepal and he he sees a I, I think he. A, he mentions that the god Shiva, the god of destruction, with the implication that that's he's kind of serving Shiva, who is essentially Sabraj. Um, and sh- meanwhile, uh, 
Monique goes goes through town and they they come across across a really interesting ceremony. There's a a bunch of people um, on the street of Kathmandu looking up at a window of a house, and it's they're looking at uh, Kamari Davi, which is apparently a living goddess who's reincarnated as a little girl. And Monique is told the story that this is this little girl um, will be treated as this this you know um, this godlike figure that people will worship up until she hits puberty, and then she'll be cast aside, and another prepubescent girl will be found, and this girl will go through life being considered bad luck. And so these highly kind of like symbolic religious um, religious kind of nods are made to Eastern. Eastern kind of Hindu um, religiosity, and I was curious to see how much of that you um, you experienced since you've been over there in the East, um, in the far in uh, South and East Asia, and if you've uh, found any had any thoughts about uh, those kind of Hindu aspects, particularly. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. That's a good question. Yeah. I think I so we we served in Bangladesh, which obviously is. Uh, is Muslim majority country, but we did travel um, in Nepal and in India and other places quite a bit, and I think that um, you know that is uh, that aspect that you're talking about is very much wrapped up in in the culture of those countries, and it's something that I think Western people do um, seek out and and try to better understand, and I think that um, maybe one of the things that many people don't understand before they come to this part of the world is just how diverse in terms of culture and religion these these countries are and you know that actually uh they're they're all very mixed like if you come to thailand for instance it's a a buddhist majority country but they're and but and you can go to to temples you know very old temples and you'll see hindu elements in these temples from the time when you know the area was occupied by a, a different empire and it had kind of a different kind of cultural influence and and that even within these countries that there's been a lot of fluctuation between you know kind of uh, hindu hindu led kind of um leaders uh, versus buddhist led versus uh you know obviously islam is a, a big uh, role in the region too, especially when you get you know further south and into Indonesia and and then also um, in in India as well. So I think that um, it's it's exactly what you said. I think that you know the people are really just enthralled by that and come to uh, South Asia and Southeast Asia to better understand it. Spend time. We've you know met people who have kind of uh, done what one one of the characters, the American woman, uh, kind of early in the series comes to this part of the region world to do and that is to you know go to a temple go to a, a monastery and and kind of try to understand her own life and you know kind of deal with the cosmic questions of the of the universe uh in, in one of these kind of religious contexts and so i think it's um I, I personally find it interesting i think that i i don't understand enough about kind of culture and religion in in many of these countries and every time we go i try to learn more and and talk to people and and i think it's um one of the really fun and exciting parts about being this part of the world is that, you know, we've got so much of that to understand and every country is a little bit different. It has a really mixed, um, mixed history. It's, you know, in no, by no means is it, it mono, monolithic in any way. And a guy who kind of inhabits this, this world and preys upon people who are seeking this out is, is Charles Sabraj. And I want to talk about his, um, his character as, as portrayed by Tahar Rahim, who's a, who does a, an excellent, an excellent kind of gripping, 
gripping portrayal. Um, he kind of, it's almost like a, a cult leader of his own little group of people there that keeps them in this psychological bind. Uh, they can't, nobody can leave him. But he's also kind of a, it's interesting uh, the way he's portrayed. He's also kind of a, a diabolical um, escape artist. So, you know, early on, as we, the, the, the way the series is structured, it seems like each episode kind of focuses on a different character and you kind of get background on each of them. And, and I think it was toward the end of the series, six or seven, I think episode six or seven, um, there's, there's a, at one point he's in India with his first wife, who he married in 1969, a French woman, um, and felt they they left to to go to India because he felt he could not rise up and 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 succeed within what he felt was a stifling French uh, Parisian society. So um, he's caught by police after after he robs a hotel of jewels and um, in a, in a like a really interesting like again diabolical plan that was uh, that after he did it I never I've never heard of anyone actually doing this uh basically injured himself in a way to fake appendicitis then managed to drug his guards escape prison get his wife they go to Afghanistan and are only caught again because his car breaks down and it's interesting about all this there's there's a uh, there's a, a moment where he tells her, it doesn't matter how good they are at catching me. I will always be better at escaping. And when he said that, it for some reason, there's there's a line, there's there's something that, that flashed in my head. And uh, that's the note that like when you're watching a good, say, miniseries or, or TV, but specifically film, or it, the most effective kind of cinematic villains are the ones who think of themselves as the heroes of their own story. And when he said that, that noted that about about no one being able to catch him and and the pride throughout this and the way that that he's he's played he kind of is is viewed he almost views himself he definitely views himself as the hero of his own story where he's battling against all these stifling social and racial and and societal um impediments that are thrown at him even though he's you know a, a murderous poisonous you know scumbag it reminded me of the first line of David Copperfield, um, which I wrote down. It says, whether I shall turn out to be the hero of my own life or whether that station will be held by anybody else, these pages must show. And the, over the course of eight episodes, it kind of shows that despite him thinking himself, I think, to be the hero of his own story, he's just this horrific serial killer that almost is self-delusional. Um, at certain points, because of the time that's given to his character, what were your thoughts on on Sabraj's kind of um, psychology in that aspect of it? The, what what drove him as portrayed during these eight episodes? Yeah, I, I think you're right that he's the the person who is championing this these issues to battling against you know racial injustice and class uh, issues and. I think actually, you know, early on he says something to Monique that says it's along the lines of like, you know, they're talking about one of their victims and he's uh, trying to assuage her guilt and he says something like, "Oh no, we're helping him," you know, we're he's he's got all these problems and we're you know, we're we're you know relieving of him of his misery or something like that and uh, I, it seems like he really did see himself as not only kind of. Uh, fighting these kind of fundamental evils in the world, but but in some ways, you know, liberating his victims. And uh, oh, it was 
it, you're right that I mean he's certainly delusional, but um, you know, I mean, how else could you do all these terrible things and and continue with it and persevere for so many years, including in prison for so many years, without really feeling like you had it right? You know, and I think it's uh, uh, it's fascinating that how he kind of convinces himself and others, and you can tell through the series, you know, uh, Monique is kind of. Uh, not totally convinced at times and she doubts herself but uh, time and time again she's kind of she lets herself be convinced by Sobraj that you know he's he's uh, really got a, a vision and uh, he understands the world and its intricacies better and uh, that and that what he's really doing in the end is I think she knows that you know there's there's self-interest obviously he's stealing money from these victims but she kind of lets herself uh, be convinced that there's kind of a higher purpose in their activities and I think you're right it's very interesting yeah, I agree. And, and the many women in Sobraja's life that he kind of either has in close in his thrall or that he utilizes and, and drops very quickly. Uh, one of them is Suda Romian, who is the Thai, his Thai girlfriend, who is basically his connect on gem dealing and the daughter of a local policeman. And obviously has a very kind of pragmatic relationship, even though she thinks she's uh, going to be his next wife to the point where they have... Um, a portion of one of the episodes that uh, where it's the build up to their engagement party where all of her family is going to show up and she does all this and it's very happy even though while she's doing this she has a suitcase full of incriminating evidence that she's keeping for him that will basically keep him out of jail and the first chance he gets when he gets uh, when he essentially bribes his way out of local jail is to retrieve that case and her engagement ring off her finger and then bolts basically gets away so he can be with Monique so the manipulations on uh, on his personal relationships with the with the women that 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 he falls uh, that that fall for him uh, I agree that were very interesting I'm glad they gave the space that a miniseries provides for Suda's kind of um, motivations for taking up with him it's it's there's several it's, it's an interesting kind of local aspect the idea of of this this guy having at least for a brief period actual uh prospective roots in bangkok and thailand where he could set up you know a life going forward even though she doesn't know it <laughs> so yeah that's right right he's definitely playing the playing many sides of the field isn't he yeah i was i was wondering on going beyond uh, that aspect of of Sabraj, I want to talk about his legacy. As someone who's now been in in, in Thailand for, for a bit, and I'm sure did research leading up to your time uh, being posted there, how much, if anything, did you know about Sabraj? And is there any kind of legacy, negative or otherwise, that kind of hangs over the country, even, say, 45 years later? You know, I had never heard this story before. I um, actually had another Foreign Service officer friend that flagged it for me and when this... Uh, and this miniseries came out. So I I think that um, there have been... I mean, this is obviously a very sensational story and it dragged on for a really long time. Um, but I'm, I'm not sure that it is... It's not something that I had come across as being very prominent. And I think that there are... This is probably, you know, one of many stories that are like this in this part of the world, especially, um, you know, before things were maybe well-documented and, you know borders were more porous and, and and maybe, you know, we didn't hear about all the different kind of stories of things going on. So I think um, there are there are all kinds of people that, that pass through this part of the world and 
transnational crime is definitely something that um, many countries are working to address. And uh, I think, you know, probably this is just one of one of many stories and um, that, you know, it's kind of it's just part of the history of, of things that have happened here. But yeah, I don't think that there's like a, a pall that hangs over the, the backpacker community in, in Thailand necessarily about this particular story. I, I, I'm not sure how many people are actually aware of it. Um, it's only been kind of in general release. It was a co-production, obviously, of Netflix and BBC One since, I think, January, February. Have you heard about anything, any local reaction to the series? No, I haven't. Yeah, I'm, I, I have to admit that I'm not very well plugged into that. Um, I'd, be, I'd be interested to know how people would see this, whether they kind of see it as an a interesting story or, or representative of the, uh, of the countries where... where Sobraj travels and kind of the kind of portrayal of, of you know local officials and, and people. I, I'd be interested to know what people think about that. Um, but I think you know from my own from my own standpoint, it's interesting to kind of like use this as a way to talk about that period and um, kind of a particular aspect of the foreign traveler and, and their experience um, through the lens of this kind of like following this serial killer as he travels all all through these different countries. Yes, and I'm I'm sure there's any number of of people with the with the same kind of um, murderous drive as as Sabraj who have um, you know been been the the kind of bane of backpackers any at any part of the world that kind of have the same kind of characteristics. I think at one point uh, they read Monique's diary, and I, I think it's um, Herman's wife notes of of Sabraj that he seduces, he betrays, he destroys, and yet she yearns for him. And I think that kind of psychological control and, and danger ha, um, is, is kind of a danger. Those, those people exist, unfortunately, um, everywhere and are, need to be kind of um, on the guard. You know, we need as, as I guess, tourists, to be on the guard against those sorts of, of people, no matter how um, seductive they may be. You know, one of the things about Sabraj that's that's interesting and after watching this is, he's, is that in, in a way he would make one hell of a kind of personal tour guide. He knows every cool place to go to get you to fall, to fall for him. You know, secluded waterfalls, the best kind of views on lakes, you know, the best secret holy sites. It's... You know those those kind of things. It's like uh, again, it goes back to the idea of what makes you know a villain uh, so effective, and it's one where if you tweak them just a little bit, he could be um, you know an a, a incredible an incredible kind of ally uh, for a tourist uh, uh, um, on on the go. Just try that that person who knows all the stuff that you know all the the places that other people won't go. It just happens that that uh, it'll cost you your life, your valuables, and your passport. Um, yeah, unfortunately. Think, you know, oh, I was gonna say, I think that you know, just it kind of gets to his something we talked about earlier, which is you know his his mixed heritage. And one way to look at that is that you know it makes it hard for him to fit in. But I think another way to look at that is that he is like the ultimate tour guide because he can move between worlds. You know, he knows he's he's connected to the world of Vietnam. He's connected to the world of of Western Europe and France and, and has kind of all these kind of, uh, linkages to all the different countries where he travels between. And that, you know, as, a what we were talking about, you know, the, the foreign tourist, the American tourist that comes to this part of the world is confronted with this really diverse, 
hard to understand, culturally interesting uh, place that is fascinating because it's so com- complicated. And that, you know, what you really need to, to sink your teeth in and to really get the full experience is a local guide. And, and who better than somebody that kind of has a foot in both worlds and can help introduce you to all the secrets and unlock all the mysteries that you're kind of trying to understand. And of course, there's there's a danger in that, you know, you're putting full trust in this person and you, you better hope that they're, uh, they're, they're not misrepresenting themselves and their intentions. And that's, this kind of series showed the whole, the whole danger in that. So it's very interesting. On a final positive note, as someone who is, again, who is, has been in, in Thailand for, for a bit now, for those looking to, to visit, have you discovered any any unique or fun places that you'd recommend people visit if they come to Bangkok or, or to greater Thailand that have left an impression on you? Oh, my goodness. I mean, there's too many, too many places to, to list. I mean, I think the thing about Thailand, it is uh, very uh, well-traveled and has very good tourist infrastructure. And so I think almost anywhere you go, um, you can really get off the beaten path and, and see a lot and it's, and it's safe and, and a lot of fun. I think that um, what I, I have enjoyed, we've gone down uh, south to the islands and there's um, a number of places, you know, people often go to Phuket, but there are a lot of other smaller islands you can go to um, that have, you know, diving and beaches and all kinds of great things to do, you know, stuff for quiet beach activities, stuff for parties on the beach. Um, so I, you know, I enjoy the south of Thailand, but I also really, really like the north. Um, and, you know, when you go kind of north of Bangkok, there's Chiang Mai is kind of the big city as a jumping off point with lots of great things in, in and of itself. But uh, a short drive from Chiang Mai are all kinds of interesting waterfalls and um, temples and, and things to see. One place that makes me think of from this series is a place called Pai. Uh, which is very is a little bit about three hours north of Chiang Mai, near the uh, near kind of near the Myanmar Lao border area up there, and uh, it's you know it, it's a kind of a hippie area but with great restaurants and a walking street and um, temples and waterfalls and things to see. So, gosh, you know, Chris, that's a it's a tough question, but I would say you know people coming to Bangkok should certainly get outside, you know, see what there is to see in Bangkok, but get down south to the beaches, get up north to the mountains. And, um, and really see what the country has to offer because it is really amazing. And let's just hope that, you know, we get this COVID thing kicked uh, pretty soon and, and travel resumes and people are able to do that again. Agreed. All good recommendations too, Evan. Thank you for being on Welcome to the Party Pal. Great. It's my pleasure. A lot of fun to talk to you, Chris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.